The story of the rich young man in Matthew 19, I find to be one of the most challenging passages in all of the gospel. Uh, Let's get into it. Matthew 19, verse 16. Behold, one came up to him saying, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? One there is who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which? And Jesus said, you shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have observed. What still do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then could be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is challenging. A few things to note. He's a young man. And not only is he a young man, he's a very wealthy young man. And I think even for us Catholics, thinking about like what good we're going to do in the world, how we're going to change the church, how we're going to do all this stuff. If we had wealth and we you know, loved Christ, I mean, think about all the good that we can do. And yet we, we have this exact scenario here in the Gospels of a wealthy young man. And I think it's really a sign of our times that a lot of times we'll look at ourselves as Catholics and as Christians and think, oh, the good that I could do if I had wealth. And I think we substitute the vibrancy of the gospel for the good that wealth can accomplish. And this is difficult. Now, this is one of the stories I want to get into the the kind of nitty gritty of the details. So we have one coming up, coming up to him saying, teacher, did a scale, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? So the first thing he's asking is, okay, you've been preaching this eternal life thing and I want to possess this, but what do I need to do? What good, good thing? It's literally an agathon, ti agathon poesio. You know, what is this good thing that you wish for me to do? And then Jesus first says, why do you call me good? Only one is good. So this is a reference to his divinity. You know, you call me good teacher, but there's only one who is good and that is God alone. And so the implication is the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. If, however, you desire to enter into life, keep the commandments and it's guard over it. And and notice here, it's if you desire to enter into life. And I, I think we take this passage as meaning only the next life. You know, if you wish to enter into heaven, you have to do these things. Well, here, if you wish to enter into life would be if you wish to, you know, believe in me and fully live in me, and I give you the grace to do so, then you need to keep my commandments. You know, First uh, John, John will talk about um, this, by this, we know that we love the Lord if we keep his commandments. And so Christ says, it's first saying, okay, why do you call me good? There's one who's good alone, God alone. You've recognized that. And now you desire to, to enter into life, so I tell you to keep the commandments. And then we have the, the young man says, which, poyas, you know, which commandments do I need to keep? 
And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. So here we have the, you know, how are we to act according to our neighbor? And then the last one, you know, love your neighbor as yourself encapsulates all of that. So you can see that Christ already says, love God above all things and your neighbor as yourself. And then, you know, reiterates the commandments to him. But the young man said, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? So the, 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 you know, Jesus doesn't come back and say, yeah, that's nice. You've kept all the commandments. Great. Um, you know, he doesn't rebuke the young man and say, no, you haven't kept them. He challenges him. And Jesus said to him, if you desire to be perfect, if you desire, and then the Greek is teleos, which is if you desire to be complete, go and sell all that you have, all that you are in possession of and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So the rich young man is recognizing that he still lacks something. He's trying to enter into this life that Christ is promising, but he still realizes there's something that is lacking in him. And so what does Christ challenge him to do? If you desire to be perfect, to be completed, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This is challenging. <laughs> I, I think, you know, um, there's kind of two ways when you approach the gospel regarding wealth and regarding money. I, I think one of them is to basically incorporate whatever Christ says about wealth and money into our current economic system and current ways of viewing money and say, well, what this is, is only for those people who, you know, want to be religious, you know, so they want to like give away their money and and the other one is to say, oh, wait a second, I think Christ is making a demand on how Christians understand their wealth and understand their property on all Christians. And this isn't just for like one group. I think oftentimes people come to this rich young man um, story and think, well, that's for people who are going to be religious and give away property. No, I, there's demands by Christ here about the completion of the Christian in some sense does not occur unless we start to become detached from our property. Um, if we go back to Psalm 62, we hear this is just a wonderful song. Psalm. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him alone comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be moved. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. For my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Trust in him in all times, O people. Men of low estate are but a breath. Men of high estate are but a delusion. In the balances they go up, they together are lighter than a breath. Put no confidence in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. It's a weird phrase. Put no confidence in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. You know, um, the quickest way for anyone to make money quickest ever is to steal it. Um, and this is why war is so profitable because you can, by violence, take the property of others. Um, and so thievery and theft is the, the quickest way to, to make money. 
And this is the reason in the Old Testament why you had to attend to the widows and the orphans, because they are the ones who are most vulnerable to being exploited, because there's no one to actually, you know, stop this. And if the idea, if Israel is meant to, um, you know, there's supposed to be a well-distributed amount of property and of resources amongst Israelites, then you know, put no confidence in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery, because in the end, just like the the parable of the the rich man who, you know, he gets this amazing harvest and says, I'm going to tear down these barns, I'm going to build bigger barns. And then Christ says, but that night his soul was demanded of him, you know, who then will have his increase. If riches increase, set not your heart on them, what greed does is when you acquire more, it doesn't satiate the desire. It actually inflames the desire. Um, when you set your heart on riches and riches increase, then you want to have more riches. Um, wealth production, you know, acquiring more and more goods, it can be its own type of you know positive feedback loop. Um, and so if riches increase, set not your heart on them. And when Jesus says to him, if you desire to be perfect, sell what you are possessing and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What happens? The young man heard this logon, this word, and he went away grieving. And the word in the the Greek is lupomenos, which was like even grieving. It's used elsewhere for like grieving over a dead one. Um, And there's something of... so. If in a certain sense, if you if if you do acquire wealth in a kind of stealing manner where you've not given the wage earner his due of his production, for example, or you've stolen or you've done some type of thing where you've extorted and gained more money by thievery, there's nothing that hurts you more than having that money stolen away from you again, right? <laughs> and in this scenario, what Christ is saying is, you follow the commandments, you've done all these things, but your heart is so set on riches. Your heart is so set on the good of material things that you're not willing to, you know, renounce those for God. I love taking Psalm 62 as kind of the, um, the major thesis of this because, you know, it says men of low estate are but a breath, men of high, high estate are a delusion. And the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Uh, yeah, and you're gonna die. You know, <laughs> all your wealth's, wealth's gonna be gone as well. And you know, wealth. What what God has done with the world is He's created it in His beneficence. He's given us all the material things of this world, and to set your heart on riches is in some way to, um, it's to deny the good of the Creator. And to deny that these created goods are meant to lead you to God, it's it's setting your heart on the created goods as uh, and, and in greed, trying to acquire those from more and more others, to take those productive property from others, to take more for yourself. Put no confidence in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Um, the heart's the heart being set on wealth is. It, it, it is really this feedback loop where people become more and more engrossed on how to produce wealth. A, a beautiful uh, exposition of this is in G.K. Chesterton's Higgins is a Heathen, where he <laughs> he talks about, 
you know, Higgins is a heathen and he lends those poor, the poor people, that funny cash that makes them poor still. There's this weird um, instance where, where greed, you know, the people who are most greedy are always trying to both save a dollar and take as much as they possibly can. So there's a double challenge here. Um, the first challenge is detachment from wealth. Now, these material things are meant for Christ and for his kingdom. Um, and you don't want to be like Ananias and Sapphira who are hiding their wealth away from Christ and away from the church. They're trying to secularize wealth in Acts 5. If you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, what happens is when uh, all the Jerusalem Christians are selling their property in Jerusalem because Christ is foretold that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So they're selling their property and giving it to the apostles and following them completely. But Ananias and Sapphira say they're they're going to give this huge amount, but they're actually keeping a much larger amount away from themselves and not, you know, being forthright with the apostles. And because of that, they're struck dead. And it's because they've set their heart their hearts on wealth and lied. You know, if they had kept that and said, I'm going to keep this for this specific purpose, that would have been fine. But when they secularized the wealth, when they said, my wealth is my own, it's totally my own, it's not, no one else's, no one can tell me what to do, and I'm going to lie about it, that was when they went too far. Notice here also, Christ doesn't condemn the wealth of the rich young man. You know, um, as Ambrose says, wealth in the hands of the righteous can be an aid to virtue. And as Christ says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That if you order your wealth properly, it can be a great good. Now, here, what Christ is challenging the young man to do is to renounce his wealth, give it to the poor, follow Christ to do his will more perfectly and be detached from that. And what happens? He goes away grieving, for he was one having many possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, a rich man with difficulty will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say for you, say to you, it is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are all astonished, saying, who then is able to be saved? Um, and why is this? Because a rich man with difficulty will enter the kingdom of, of heaven. And if you remember, the kingdom of heaven is not just an eschatological reality. That doesn't just mean that, you know, that an individual rich man can't be saved in heaven. What it means is a rich man is not going to be looking for salvation. And this is this is a difficult thing. That we have when your heart is set on riches and when you're in this cycle of greed and you have wealth, why do you need Christ? I mean, you don't need to be saved from you, you already have dominion over the earth through your wealth, through your w- riches. And so why do you need to be a Christian? Excuse me. Why do you need to be a Christian? And, and Nietzsche points this out in Beyond Good and Evil and in Genealogy of Morals that what Christianity does is it inverts everything where the wealthy and the powerful are all of a sudden feeling guilty about their wealth and they're feeling guilty about their power. Um, and so it's difficult, you know. A rich man is not even going to be, to be looking for that salvation that Christ is offering. In a certain sense, he's looking at himself as the, when, when someone, when a rich man looks at his wealth and says, this is totally my own, I've accomplished this for myself, I've worked hard and I made it all my own, 
there's a temptation in that to deny the beneficence of God in giving the gifts to you. You know, when when um, Caesar's coin gets brought to Christ, and he says, you know, whose image and inscription is on this? It's Caesar's image. In a certain sense, when Caesar produces the coins, people will look at it and say, well, I've acquired this on my own, and Caesar's the one who gave it to me. But Christ says, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. Like God has created all of this in his goodness. It's not meant for us to look at, you know, the ownership of property and say, this is totally my own. I, I have no no use beyond this, but besides my arbitrary will. And this is what John Locke does with his transcendental property thing, that property is even an attribute that God has re- regarding creation. Uh, he's the op- absolute property owner. You know, he can do whatever he wants with his creation because he's the property owner. Likewise, if you own the property and the state recognizes your property, then you can do whatever you want with it. No one can tell you there's no good of material things that we're meant to be leading it towards God. Again, it is easier, I say to you, for a camel to enter, enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, I've always found this, uh, you know, recently thinking about this image again, obviously it's this image of impossibility. And actually, there's been some scholarship that camel and the eye of a needle, there's an Aramaic wordplay going on here. I can't remember exactly what it is, but there's a reason why camel and eye of a needle are there. But if you also think about it, like a camel's filled with this water, right? It's it's almost like you, you have this image of the rich man carrying on the wealth on his back. And to enter through an eye of a needle, you almost need to squeeze out that wealth. And <laughs> And what I mean by that is not take the property and that type of stuff. What I mean by that is you have to start to have this detachment from material goods to recognize your utter poverty in the face of God. You know, naked I came from the womb, naked I will I will return to the earth. Um, as Job says, I mean, Job was a very wealthy, wealthy man in the Old Testament, and all of that was taken away by God. And what his wife told him to do was curse God and die. <laughs> you know, and I, and I think if that rich young man, all of his possessions were taken away, he would also be tempted to to curse God and die. But what what Job says is, naked I came into this world, naked I will return, that you're not going to take any of that wealth with you to the grave. You know, one thinks of like the Egyptian pharaohs being buried with all their money. It's, it's, it's very, it's funny. It's, it's like ironic. It's, um, or, you know, uh, people build the pyramids and the pagans build like the Taj Mahal, for example, where he built this enormous palace for his wife's burial, <laughs> uh, this great king of India. And why is that? Because the rich realize they're going to die and they want their name to be great in all the earth for their wealth, for their beneficence, for their majesty. Um, but they don't take any of that with them when they die. Psalm 62, once again, you know, put no confidence in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Men of low estate are but a breath. Men of high estate are a delusion. And the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Um, you know, you're not going to take that wealth with you when you die. And I think the temptation for Catholics, for Christians more generally, uh, is to set your heart on riches. Think that the gospel message is most effective when it's most wealthy. Um, this isn't a universal condemnation of anyone who has wealth. I think that's very silly. That that leads to a kind of class warfare silliness. 
Um, but what the gospel message is, is to rich and low alike, Christ offers salvation. And all if you take the gospels as being archetypal for you know how Christianity spreads, the poor realize their low estate more rapidly oftentimes than those who are wealthy. This doesn't mean that the, the poor don't have their own uh, difficulties. Later on, we'll see the uh, parable of the talents, where Christ gives a parable about poverty, where what poverty can do is make you resentful to the point, uh, resentful to everything, resentful at life, resentful at um, the wealthy, resentful at God for making you impoverished. And you can, you can likewise go into a curse God and die mentality with poverty. So, but the poor recognize their low estate. The rich, oftentimes it takes them much longer to realize their poverty in the, in the face of God, their poverty in the face of reality, and that they need to use that wealth properly. Having heard this, the disciples were greatly astonished and they were exel sofroda, which is like, they were super duper, <laughs> English would be like, they're super duper astonished saying who then will be saved and Jesus said to them with men this is impossible however with God all things are possible what an amazing line what an amazing line you know the liberation theologians have basically taken marxism and ran with it and said what christianity really preaches is the class warfare that what christ is bringing on is the hegelian end of the world will be the destruction of class, the destruction of ownership over property, the sharing of all things in Christ. Uh, no, no, he's not. You know, with men, this is impossible. Um, that wealth alone is not going to bring the kingdom. You're not going to conquer for Christ via just pure wealth. You know, there's there's many other rich people in the world. There's been rich people from all time, you know. The Bezos and Musks of our generation were the Rockefellers and Carnegies of the last, you know, number of generations, and before them were Louis the, you know, thirteenth, and before them, there's been many wealthy people. Um, but they're not Christ, and they're not God. <laughs> and the gospel message is that wealth is meant for God and meant for Christ, um, and all these things are meant to ultimately be for the kingdom of heaven, for the church. With men, this is impossible. However, with God, all things are possible. Okay, that's going to wrap it up for this. I hope you were challenged by this. I certainly am. Uh, I, I also, you know, I don't have this perfect. This is still challenging for me. I think a lot of times when I think about the good that I can do for the church, uh, I, I think all the time about, well, what if I just had that money? What if I just, you know, was able to buy this and buy that? And then, you know, my influence spreads. So this is challenging for me. <laughs> um, thanks for listening. I'll see you in the next one.